0: I invite you to turn into your pew Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, continuing in our series of this Old Testament book. You'll find that on page 881 in your pew Bibles there. Once again, like we've been doing this whole time with Daniel, we're going to see some familiar themes going on here. But this is a an account that you're... Uh, most likely familiar with. It's the Feast of Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall. Uh, This is a very sobering text for us this morning, uh, because it really, at its core, uh, confronts us with sin, confronts us with our sin, but then how how we respond to that sin. So I encourage you this morning, as we read this text and explore it together, Uh, to do a real deep dive into your souls, examine yourself, and ask the question, what am I doing with my sin? Let's turn to our text this morning. Daniel chapter 5, we'll read the entirety of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. King Belshazzar made a great feast for for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, "'You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah.' I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O King, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty, and because of the greatness that he gave him all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he killed, and whom he would he kept alive. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lord, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored." Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Thus far, the reading of God's word, shall we pray. Father in heaven, very simply, we ask this morning that you show us Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Well, it was the year 2008. And in that year, the United States of America and then subsequently the the rest of the entire world uh, experienced a global financial crisis. Prior to the COVID-19 recession in 2020, it was considered, perhaps by many economists, to have been the most serious financial crisis since the Great Depression. As uh, our trusty friend Wikipedia tells us, predatory lending targeting low-income home buyers, excessive risk-taking by global financial institutions, and the bursting of the United States housing bubble culminated in what you could call a perfect storm. Financial institutions worldwide suffered severe damage, reaching a climax with the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers on September 15, 2008, and a subsequent international banking crisis. And then after the onset of the crisis, governments uh, deployed massive bailouts of financial institutions and other monetary and fiscal policies to prevent a collapse of the global financial system. This crisis sparked what we have come to know as the Great Recession which resulted in increases in unemployment and suicide and decreases in institutional trust and fertility, among other metrics. Well, 2008, it was a very tumultuous and catastrophic uh, time, not only for this nation, but then, of course, for the rest of the world as well. I remember it uh, happening in great detail, even being in Canada, because I had just started a job in retail, And we were all wondering why food prices were going up and even why hours were being slashed for our our duties. But with something as big and catastrophic as this was in the financial sector, could something like this have been predicted? Were there signs pointing to the bursting of the U.S. housing bubble? As the saying goes which finds its, its etymology, its word meaning in the text we just read this morning. Was there writing on the wall? Standard nomenclature for apparent signs that something bad will happen in the future. Well, if you read up on the 2008 stock market crash, you will indeed read about a certain group of investors who did predict this crash based on the telltale signs that they saw in the housing market in 2015. There was a a movie made about this called The Big Short. Essentially what happened was banks were handing out mortgages like candy uh, that were fed into the Wall Street machine, but what they didn't do was they didn't check too hard whether the home buyers they were lending money to had any chance, realistic chance, of paying them back. And when home prices started falling, people started, uh, stopped making payments on mortgages they couldn't afford. It just caused this snowball and chain reaction that nearly broke the financial system. And this small group of investors saw this impending disaster looming, and what they did was find a way to profit off of it. Uh, as a, a Time magazine review said, basically what they did was they bought insurance against the possibility that the housing market might collapse, which means they paid a monthly premium while the party rolled on, but got a huge payout when it all went boom, which, of course, it did to terrible effect. In other words, they saw the writing on the wall, for an impending catastrophe, and they took action to protect themselves. Considering our text this morning now, King Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall, but only understood it by appointed divine revelation. There was nothing, however, that he could do to defend or protect himself. He, he couldn't buy insurance premiums against any assured collapse. He couldn't pay this premium while the party rolled on. No, the handwriting on the wall in our text this morning spelled certain doom for him, and there was nothing he could do to change that. Judgment was coming for Belshazzar, and he couldn't avoid it. It was certain. We'll see why in a moment, but the bottom line is that Belshazzar's sin wasn't dealt with in a God-honoring way. And the forbearance of the Lord had run its course, and so the Lord dealt with him accordingly. Now, as I said, this is a very sobering passage for us to consider this morning. Our sin is real, very much so. And the consequences for repeated unrepentant sin are real, leading to a heart that can be so hard-hearted against the Lord that it actually is beyond redemption. Scripture tells us these things. We all have sin in our lives. What are we doing with it, though? With the presence of sin in our lives, are we unrepentantly mocking God, or are we coming to him in faith, repentance, which then leads to obedience. May I submit to you this morning that in the lives of those defined by, continued, unrepentant sin, God does give them over in judgment to a hard-heartedness that is beyond redemption. And in this, we take great warning. In two sections regarding that theme this morning, we're going to see this play out and what we can learn from it. In two ways, we'll see this reason for Belshazzar's judgment, and then we'll also see how this judgment is then declared. You can follow along um, in in a sermon outline in your bulletins there. So first of all, we take note of Belshazzar's reason, the reason for his judgment. We should take note first, though, uh, the, the person to whom judgment comes. Of course, we've heard his name multiple times throughout our text. This is King Belshazzar. Uh, from Babylonian sources, we know that Belshazzar was placed in charge of Babylon because at the same time his father, Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon, spent many periods of time in Arabia. Now, you're going to wonder, I heard mo- many times in our text that Nebuchadnezzar was his father. Well, hold on. We're going to see in a minute why he's not. We'll see why Nebuchadnezzar was called his father, though, in a moment. At this time, Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, and his army uh, were more than likely defeated by the Medo-Persian army just outside of Babylon. And this great feast that is put on here by Belshazzar was probably a defiant act, uh, a bold display of invulnerability, uh, if you will. And it's in the context of this feast where the reason for Belshazzar's judgment takes place. This is about the year 539 B.C., uh, the year of Babylon's fall, many years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. And it, it spells out very clearly this sacrilege that King Belshazzar committed. Not only is he under the influence of wine in front of the thousand but he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Belshazzar and his people got drunk off of sacred items taken from the Jerusalem temple. Not that these vessels weren't already defiled at this point because they had been taken out of the temple, but the blasphemy just increases all the more when the wine is drunk from them. Here's the thing. Belshazzar could have had any particular chalices taken to be brought from him. Uh, and brought to the party chamber for him and his crew of drunken revelers to drink out of. But no, he commanded very specifically that the vessels from the Jerusalem temple be brought. This was an intentional, blasphemous act on Belshazzar's part. It's, It's an intentional spitting in the face of our Lord. Furthermore, the vessels are put to more improper use because... Through them, they drank wine and then subsequently praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Belshazzar here attempts to find security and protection in earthly things, but it's a vain attempt. It's ill-sought protection against threats that he actually has no control over. This is one reason for Belshazzar's judgment, his sacrilege before the Lord in this way. Well, another reason for judgment is Belshazzar doesn't recognize that he must humble himself before God like his predecessor. Now, Daniel recounts for Belshazzar what exactly happened to his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He begins in verse 18 by saying, O King, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness, glory and majesty. Now, going back to this usage of the word father in relation to Nebuchadnezzar, we know uh, with historical records that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't Belshazzar's biological father. So, why use this word father to describe him? It appears very intentional. Generally speaking, the word father in ancient writings such as this can also denote predecessor, your father, the king, even though he's not your biological father, the one who came before you. But it strikes a chord within us as we read this text in conjunction with Daniel chapter 4 and what came before it, the one that documents Nebuchadnezzar's own sin of pride, of his subsequent humbleness before the Lord. The repeated appearance of the word father, then, in this text has a very profound meaning here. Daniel recounts how this father of Belshazzar's hardened spirit was brought low, made so low like, like that of the beasts of the earth, until when? Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And then in verse 22, And you, his son, meaning successor, uh, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Key words here. Though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And then Daniel moves on to describe how these vessels of the Lord were profaned and how he had been worshiping and praising these gods with them as well. Brian Chapel makes this comment about this. Daniel repeatedly directs his audience's attention to the spiritual victory of Nebuchadnezzar and in his life, in contrast to Belshazzar's subsequent surrender to wickedness. The message is that sin can reinfect a people, but the primary audience of this message is not Babylon. It's the people of God. God is pointedly warning Israel And us, that sin results in judgment, and that every generation must seek him anew. Belshazzar's heart is hardened in this way stubbornly, unrepentantly, and is worthy of judgment. Where are you this morning? Are you in word or deed? Do you mock God with your sin? Do you mock God, particularly in matters of worship, that just turn out to be sacrilegious at the end of the day? Now, our actions might not be as licentious as a pagan uh, king in Babylon in the 6th century B.C., but examine yourself very carefully this morning. Do we come here this morning with an unrepentant heart? Did you come to the Lord's table last week, indifferent and carefree about sin, casually munching on bread and sipping back juice with no regard for wickedness? Why do we even come through the doors of Beacon Light on Sunday? Do we just come to hang out? God's not worthy of my time, but I just want something to do. I just want to hang out. Do we come here to worship the living God or just to feel good about ourselves? Do we come here with a pure and clean heart, repentant of sin? Belshazzar hid behind vain idols, worship, worshiping them before the Medo-Persians came knocking on his door that same night. What are you hiding behind? Money? Sex? Power, authority, none of these will protect you from the wrath of God. One of the resources that I had consulted for this text speaks about the willful ignorance when it comes to sin. And it says this, because of sin, human beings have the ability to induce within themselves a willful ignorance Of the truth, so that what should be obvious to them is nevertheless lost upon them. They're ignorant of it, not because they lack exposure to it, but because they choose to deny what is plain to them. There is no question that Belshazzar had heard about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar how God humbled him, restored him, and how Nebuchadnezzar rendered praise unto God afterwards. One author wrote, but in his pride and folly, Belshazzar seems blissfully unaware of this. And yet we learn from the Apostle Paul that willful ignorance operates in every fallen heart, as people suppress the knowledge of God to such an extent that they become ignorant of him, even to the point of denying his existence as they worship idols. Do you take what you learn from faithful preachers of the gospel and just let it slide past your head in willful ignorance, or do you genuinely seek to change from it, assuming what you hear preached was indeed faithful to the gospel. Continued, unrepentant sin and blasphemy and willful ignorance of truth lead to judgment beyond redemption. Jeremiah 6.15 says, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. It's a sobering point for us this morning. Our second point, then, moves to declare this judgment. Immediately after Belshazzar's sacrilege the supernatural writing on the wall takes place. Notice how it says it's opposite the lampstand there. It's very intentional uh, for it to be illuminated for all to see, but yet not able to be interpreted. Now, of course, this puts an incredible amount of fear in the heart of the king. If you were to interpret this text literally, when it says that his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together, it literally means the joints of his loins were loosened. He's scared. He's fearful. He's fearful. There's no doubt we too uh, would be frightened at this sight of a human hand appearing out of nowhere, writing on a wall. And to relieve his fears, the king asks his wise men to read and interpret the king once again. How many times have we seen this take place in the book of Daniel this far? The wise men of Babylon are rendered useless. It's going to take divine understanding and wisdom once again. And then once again, this paves way For the servant of the Lord, Daniel, who's a very old man at this point, by the way, to make his way onto the scene. The queen, in other words, the queen mother, Belshazzar's mom, reminds Belshazzar of Daniel. She tells him, There's a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. Notice those words describing Daniel, this man of light and understanding of wisdom, will soon pronounce judgment on the king. Remember this light casts out darkness. And that's about and points it out. And we're about to see that happen here in our text. Now, what's so ironic about this account, really, is this is the meaning of names. So we have here a frightened king who seeks to understand the importance of this handwriting on the wall, and so has Daniel brought in to interpret it for him, probably in hopes of saving the day, so to speak. Now, Belshazzar's name means Bel, or Marduk, protect the king. Bel slash Marduk is the chief uh, god of the city of Babylon. The Babylonian name given to Daniel is Belteshazzar, very close to Belshazzar. As our text tells us, Belteshazzar means lady or wife of Bel, protect the king. Now we know in retrospect that the king will certainly not be protected that night, especially once he's given the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. For God that night will appoint his Hebrew child of Israel to announce judgment Daniel's Hebrew name means God is my judge. Belshazzar Belshazzar can't take any comfort in the Babylonian-given name of Daniel, but he very much should fear the Hebrew name of Daniel. God is my judge. There will be no protection. God is most certainly the supreme judge here. On to the interpretation of the writing on the wall. Daniel reads, and he interprets the writing, which is very unusual to us, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. These words are written in Aramaic. A great portion of Daniel is written in Aramaic and Hebrew. Um, But it's actually a, a form of sequence of weights decreasing in units of money from a mina to a shekel to a half shekel. Uh, Belshazzar himself probably could have read this text, but his main concern was to its interpretation. What did it mean? Uh, What Daniel actually does here is he takes these uh, monetary weights of measurement and uh, turns them into their verb form with different vowels attached to the Aramaic consonants, which, when translated, reads something like this. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. In most um, study Bibles, footnotes are very helpful in pointing that out to us. In other words, the Lord had numbered Belshazzar's kingdom, bringing it to an end because he had been weighed in the balance and found wanting, which means he lacked all that is needed or expected. And some scholars think that the repetition of numbered may suggest that all of this will occur relatively quickly, which we know it did. Verses 30 through 31, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. One Old Testament professor makes this observation on that night. Uh, Greek historians both recount the fall of Babylon to the Medes and Persians, One of them describes how the invaders rushed into the palace and discovered the king on his feet with his drawn scimitar, which is a very short curved sword in his hand. By sheer weight of numbers, they overwhelmed him, and not one of his retinue escaped. They were all cut down. Thus, God judges the proud, impious Belshazzar, as Daniel foretold. Cyrus waited for a drunken feast and a man in his sin to make his move. Well, let's revisit the question asked at the beginning of this message. What are we doing with our sin? Where are we, you and me, where are we this morning with that question? There is a very stark warning in this passage to those who remain cavalier about their sin those who don't pursue godliness and righteousness, even those who call themselves Christians, even those who faithfully attend church every Sunday. The warning that Scripture gives us is that God gives hard-hearted sinners over to their sin. Three times in Romans chapter 1, we read of God giving up sinners to their hardened hearts, giving them over, and uh, that giving them over to their sins leads to judgment, even though uh, the giving over is already the beginning of the judgment. Here's the warning. Do not presume upon God's forbearance and his mercy and continue sinning. Hebrews 10, 26 through 27 says this, they're very concerning words here. Take them seriously. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Second Peter tells us that it would be better for sinners... Uh, never to leave the world than than to have Christ uh, follow him for a season, but then walk away from their supposed Christian confession, indicating that they were never saved in the first place. Peter even says this, the last state has become worse for them than the first. In other words, their knowledge and experience of the Christian life Make them more accountable to God. And if in their sin they walk away, they're like a dog that returns to the vomit of the world. Did you know you're coming here to church on Sunday morning and hearing the gospel makes you more accountable to God if we're more egregious in our sin? These are serious words we have to deal with here. How much more punishment do you think, Hebrews continues, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Examine yourself this morning. What are you doing with your sin? I hope and I pray this morning that um, that none here, in this sanctuary, only appears to be Christian and does not truly belong to the body of Christ. We're wrong to think that our attending worship and casually admitting that we believe in God and and identifying as a churchgoer is enough without a life of repentance and growth in godliness and holiness. If we do not live a life of repentance, our worship and Christian living is hollow and displeasing to God. But you might also then be asking yourself this question, but what about my daily struggles with sin? What about my habitual sins that seem to plague me all too often? Temptation hammers me constantly. I seem to give in more than I am being victorious. Will God judge me and cast me out? You might even be questioning whether or not you actually are a Christian. Here's the good news. Those who go on sinning deliberately, unrepentantly, will be identified, weighed, and judged. But the repentant are saved by grace. Not by any security or protection in the things of this world Not by behavior modification programs, accountability groups, by doing more, but saved by grace. All you need to do is look to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Recognize your sin, recognize all your flunks, all your failures, but also recognize that we're not called to just feast our eyes and focus on that constantly, but to feast our eyes on Jesus Christ when he was nailed to the cross and in whom when our sins were imputed to him, he was declared as one found wanting. He was declared as the one numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. So that we wouldn't have to be we would not be found wanting or lacking all that is needed or expected, but that we would have everything we need in Jesus, including the gifts of faith and repentance. In our daily struggle with sin and our desire to grow in holiness, we need to, uh, in some measure, collapse into this this very healthy and uh, spiritual despair of any works that we can do to get us right with God And recognize our sinfulness. And there we can find God in his open embrace to forgive sinners. There is your union with Christ. In him, he preserves us and enables us to live a life of repentance and faith and obedience. Because he gives us that strength. And he will never let you go. Now I titled this message, uh, Hands. Uh, Which hand do you focus more on? If you have put your faith in Jesus, I implore you this morning, do not fear the hand writing on the wall, but look in holy fear to the nail-pierced hands. If you profess Christ as Savior this morning, look to him by faith alone to bring you victory over your sins. We have this full assurance of faith, Just before those uh, verses in Hebrews I read earlier that depict judgment for those who go on sinning deliberately and unrepentantly, it says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart, a true heart, in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Sanctification and growth and holiness, if we're being honest with ourselves, can be two steps forward but then three steps back. But take heart, the curtain is open, the throne room is accessible, and we can draw near in confession of sin. There we do not find a handwriting on the wall, but nail-pierced hands that give us uh, an encouraging squeeze on the shoulder, that embrace us and lift our downcast heads and eyes into his loving eyes, promising that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are ever mindful of words. And at times when we read your word, we can see such a stark contrast between um, uh, mercy and grace. But then when we read about judgment, Help us to remember, though, that even in words of judgment, these, these warnings that we read about, that that is indeed uh, you and your grace and your mercy giving us these warnings in the first place. Help us to take them to heart. Father, I pray that for anyone here this morning who struggles with sin immensely, no, no matter to what degree, Father, that they know that they can continue to come to you in repentance and faith, and that you are just and willing to forgive them of all their sins, to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. But Lord, may we not just leave it there and and continue sinning just so we can continue to experience that. But Lord, may we uh, take that uh, treasure of truth and may that embolden us and motivate us to live lives uh, worthy of godliness and of holiness that we may not continue to be stuck in ruts of sin, but Lord, that we may experience true victory in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.